Now, if you will all please rise to your feet. We will read the text of Scripture. This is the Word of God, our sermon text for today. Mark 10, 35 and following. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Pastor Nate. Um, and I, I just want to explain a little bit about the circumstances. It, it is my honor and my privilege to be here standing before you this morning um, with this message. Um, I just want to give a little, uh, I guess, prescript on that. Uh, Pastor Nate is not, me standing here and him sitting there is not an uh, indication of his slothfulness. Uh, much to the contrary, I, I, I caught when, uh, when Brother John was, was praying, he said we were praying for a new pastor. And so, uh, not so that anybody would be alarmed, we're not paying, praying for a new senior pastor, we are praying for a new associate pastor. Uh, as it turns out, uh, Brother Nate and Charlotte were traveling in Alabama, of all places this week, and uh, had uh, what we'll just call a logistical nightmare coming back, uh, according to the airlines. And uh, so he called me and gave me a heads up that he might not be back in time. As it turns out, you guys got back in about one this morning or so. And so, uh, so I am thankful not only to have the opportunity uh, to be here before you, but uh, and thankful to have uh, at least 24 hours or so to prepare for this. So in that, if this flops, it is all due to my flesh. No, I'll, I'll give it my flesh. Uh, if, if, this, uh, if this message is a blessing to you at all, then praise be to God, who, uh, as every time we look at his text, praise be to him, that is a blessing at all. 
So to give you some context of where we're at with this passage, Pastor Nate actually began into this passage last week, but the clock was not his friend, just as airlines were not his friend this week. Um, and, uh, and he did not have time to get all the way through this. So uh, we're picking up at 35 and going through 45, again, Lord willing. To give you, uh, again, context, this is the, the disciples and Jesus are heading to Jerusalem. They've traveled around Israel. They spent a great deal of time up in the north, the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, these places. And now they are heading towards Jerusalem. This is the, uh, in aviation terms, this is the base to final. Uh, if you are a baseball fan, this is, they've rounded third and they're heading home. Uh, in scuba diving terms, this is the beginning of the controlled ascent. Uh, in literature terms, this is the rising conflict or tension leading up to the climax. For musicians, this is the build. They're in the midst of the build, reading to the, leading to the crescendo. It's all heading towards the cross and Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the next chapter begins with a triumphal entry. And Lord willing, that might actually coincide with Palm Sunday here, depending on how we drag out the text uh, in the next few sermons. Um, but this is it. It's leading to Jerusalem. And what has happened is a couple of chapters ago, uh, uh, in chapter 8, we begin to see this study in contrast. In chapter 8, verse 31, it talks about Jesus began to teach the disciples about his death and resurrection. This very humbling thing that he must go through. And it would be immediately followed with something like, in chapter 8, Peter rebuking Jesus for even saying that. And then getting the strong rebuke from Jesus back that we've all heard uh, Satan get behind me. And then again, we see in chapter 9 at, at verse 31, where Jesus again is telling the disciples that he must die and be raised again. And it's followed again by this discussion, picking up in uh, chapter 8 verse, or chapter 9, verse 33, uh, where the disciples began to discuss amongst, them, amongst themselves who would be greatest. So again, this discussion of Jesus saying, I must die and be resurrected, and them focusing on themselves. And then we come to our passage today, which is immediately preceded in verse 33, with Jesus talking about the fact that he must die and be raised. And then the sons of Zebedee, James and John, coming to him with this request. And so we're going to look at, as Jesus teaches today, about, as the slide says, selfish ambition or selfless gain, or selfish ser selfless service, rather. And it begins with this very arrogant request. And, and it might be, it's startling to me, this statement. And not only is it starting, startling because it comes at the heels of what Jesus has just said. Think of this, God in his providence, speaking through Mark, tells us that Jesus has says these things, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And then God tells us immediately that afterwards. And James and John came with this request. So it's kind of shocking almost, startling for sure, that this would happen at this time. But even more so, if you stop and think, James and John came. This is John. John? This is John, who in his gospel, he describes himself as the one that Jesus loved. This is, this is John. Seriously, John? This is the apostle 
uh, who was chosen to write the Gospels, three epistles, and Jesus' revelation to the churches. John. This is John, the, the only one among the 12 who is a crucifixion witness. He is standing there at the foot of the cross. This John. The John who, as Jesus was looking down from the cross, said, this is your mother, entrusted his own mother, Mary, into the hands of John. This is John. And maybe it's a little surprising. Wait, this John is so arrogant to come with this request? Well, maybe, maybe we don't know so much about the sons of Zebedee as we thought we did. So maybe if we look at their background, there might be some clues as to what their motivations might have been. Certainly we, we know of their call, that they were fishermen, and by their name, the sons of Zebedee, they were the sons of a man named Zebedee. And they were part of the family fishing business. When they were called, it, they, it said that they dropped their nets and left their father Zebedee and the servants to follow Jesus. So, so there's uh, the idea there that they belonged to a somewhat prosperous family. They had a family business with many servants. And so maybe their motivation comes from a, a mind of being privileged. They come from a privileged family. And we know that they, that they had some access to leadership. Uh, when, when you look in, in John 18, the trial of Jesus, uh, it says that, that, that Peter and John were able to access the high court of the high priest, or the court of the high priest, because the high priest knew John. So he had friends in high places, unlike Garth Brooks. And so, who had friends in low places? So, uh, so there's this access, uh, this friends thing. But maybe there's a there, maybe there's a familial uh, uh, access as well. It's said that uh, that their mother Salome was Mary's sister. Now, now some believe that 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 indicates that she was her sister in Christ, that she she was part of the God's family and sisters. But but many believe that they were actually sisters. So this would have made James and John Jesus's first cousins at least half first cousins. And uh, a note about Salome, there's this maybe idea that some think that she could have been like one of those helicopter moms because she was there. She's been present throughout the ministry. She was one of the women that, that followed Jesus and the disciples and certainly was one of the disciples. And, and maybe it was uh, her that helped uh, contribute financially and, and in other ways to the, to the ministry. I mean, you got a bunch of people wandering around. They don't have jobs. And this went on for some time. So they had to be supported somehow. Uh, but we know that she was there. She was one of the women that were at the cross. Uh, so she was a witness of the crucifixion. And also, their mother, Salome, was one of the women that came to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body. And so was a witness to the resurrection. So she was a lady that was in the right place at the right time. But it's interesting to note that in Matthew's account of this event, in Matthew 20, it was her, Salome, that comes to Jesus and says, I have a request for my son. She was the one that came. And so many people believe that uh, she was that helicopter mom. Well, I want you to take care of my boys, nephew. And so maybe this, this idea of being privileged or having some sense of privilege is, is their motivation behind why they come to him with this request. I think some of that might be true, but also if you look at their nickname, think of what uh, Jesus called them. Uh, we know that uh, in the listing of the disciples in Mark chapter 3, 
It says that uh, they were the, uh, the sons of, of Zebedee, but Jesus referred to them as the sons of thunder. That was the nickname he gave them, the sons of thunder. And from a lot of what we read, well, I don't, maybe I don't see that. Well, if you think just a few uh, chapters ago, uh, or in the previous chapter, the, uh, the incident where John, in chapter 9, verse 38, comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Of course, Jesus responds that anyone's not against us is for us. So they had this sense of privilege that he's not one of us. It didn't matter what he was doing. He wasn't one of us. So we tried to stop him. And so it's interesting to note that, that they were a little arrogant, or at least John, we see there, was a little bit arrogant. But then it's interesting that in uh, Luke's account of the same event, which occurs in chapter 9, that same event, Luke records it in chapter 9, beginning at verse 49, follows immediately with chapter or verse 51, where he talks about the disciples were coming past a Samaritan village on their way to Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus sent the, the, some disciples ahead to prepare uh, a place for them in, Samari in the Samaritan village where they could stay for the night. And they were sent back because the Samaritans would not receive them. They basically said, you Jews are heading to Jerusalem. You don't belong here in this town. Just move along. Move along. And apparently that did not sit well with the disciples. Because it says in verse 54, and when the, his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, now this is what uh, Pastor Derek Thomas calls napalm evangelism. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Their answer for this rejection was this prideful, do you want us, now think of that, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? No doubt they were thinking of Elijah as they, as they say, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? And again, Jesus rebukes them. And so there's a little bit that we can see about some motivation here. They were pretty arrogant. They were strong-headed. They were the sons of thunder. And we know a little bit about John, some of the things I've already mentioned, but we don't know a lot about James. As a matter of fact, if you looked at John MacArthur's book called uh, 12 Ordinary Men about the disciples, most of the chapter on James deals with other people and his relationship with other people. So even John MacArthur couldn't come up with a whole chapter to talk about James. But we do know that he's always listed in a group. Only once in all of Scripture is he listed by himself, and that's when he was martyred. So he's always listed in a group, and he's always listed with Peter, James, and John. Now think of this, this strong, bullheaded, arrogant disciples, Peter, James, and John. What a group. And these are the men that, that Jesus held closest to him. And I would say this isn't necessarily because he was trying to keep a hand on them. You parents know that the kid that's most out of control, you try to keep them closest. I would say that is not the case, but instead he saw these were men that were going to be leaders one day, and he invested in them, and he, brought, he kept them intimate. And so anytime you see a list, Peter, James, and John, if Peter's not present, James is always mentioned first. And a lot of people will try to read into that. You know, he was martyred first, these kind of things. Um, I think it's probably just safe to say that he's the oldest. 
So in uh, historical or in ancient Hebrew texts, the oldest is usually listed first. And so I would say that we shouldn't read too much into that, but we really don't know a lot about James. But once they come with this very arrogant request, we see an amazingly humble response from Jesus. Notice that Jesus did not rebuke them. Instead, he gives them an invitation to talk. They come with this request, and he says, what do you want for me to do for you? What do you want for me to do for you? He knew what the question was. He knew what their motivation was. But he wanted them to talk about it. Let's talk about it. And they asked their question. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And see, they, their question tells us that they, they misunderstood the nature of Christ's coming kingdom. They misunderstand what was going to happen. And, and maybe their, their thoughts were on other things. Maybe, maybe we can get a clue for that from some of the things that Jesus had said. You know, in, in, in this text, just before uh, the, the, Jesus talking about him having to, to die and be raised again, he begins to talk in, in verse 29 about his coming kingdom. Something interesting, if you turn to Matthew 19, it is the uh, similar account of this same event. And in chapter 19, of Matthew, beginning with verse 28, as we read this, put yourself in the mind of James and John. Think of where they're at. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, ooh, new world. Okay. I like where this is going, Jesus. Keep going. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, glorious throne, now I'm talking. You will have you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones. John, did you hear that? Yeah, James, I got it. Twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, that's us, right? Zebedee was left behind. Or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. James, John, did you hear this? There's thrones, eternal life, a hundredfold you're going to get back. Oh my word, yes. Let's go. They were glazed so much over with what was coming Maybe they didn't catch the last thing that Jesus said here. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. See, they misunderstood the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. They misunderstood his coming kingdom. And he told them so, didn't he? He says in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. You don't even get it. You don't even understand what it is you're asking. How often do we go to God not understanding what we are asking? How often do we go to God with carnal prayers, materialistic, selfish prayers, me-focused prayers, not understanding what we're asking? The me monster. There's this, <laughs> there's this comedian that, that I... I have an appreciation for. His name is Brian Regan. If you've never heard of him, he's a clean comedian, one of those guys that I, I started listening to him because I could listen to him while driving in the car and not worry about the kids being in the car with me. And him saying something, I'd go, oh, 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 oh
And he had this one uh, bit where he would talk about the me monster. And we've all experienced the me monster. Or maybe I would say each of us have been the me monster before where you're in a conversation with them and they are me, myself, my, I, I, me, my, I, I, me, my. And he relates this mostly to you hear it when the, the two wisdom tooth people begin to talk about their experience. He says the two wisdom tooth people will never finish their story because as they're talking about, I had my two wisdom teeth taken out, the four wisdom teeth people are always going to pounce in. He says they're like paratroopers coming in, cutting them off of the past. Oh, I had four teeth taken out. They were all impacted. Dry sockets all around. Pliers pulled him out. He's eating corn on the cob that day. They will never finish. Me, my, I. This is you. This is me. You, me. You see the difference? You, me. And he has a social fantasy about being one of the 12 astronauts that have walked on the moon. So then he could trump any conversation. No matter. He could just let that me monster go. Just go. Yeah. Yep, you, 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 you. Well, I remember when I walked on the moon and I drove that moon buggy across the sea of tranquility. There's no coming back to that. You can't beat that. The me monster, we become the me monster and our prayers become me focused. And I'm sure if we stopped and we were honest about it, we could say, yeah, that's me. I focus a lot of my prayers on me and my situation, what I'm going through. Instead, our, our prayers, our conversations with God should be God-focused. And certainly there's opportunity, and it's so many times where God and, and us intersect in our prayers as we pray for God's will in our lives. Certainly, God, God I'm praying for, for the, this thing that's coming up. Your will be done. God has a will for our lives. So there's opportunities in our prayers for us to pray about ourselves and our situations as they focus on God. There's an intersection between God and us, and we never focus our, our conversations, our prayers, on God. But they didn't get it. And so he asked this question, are you able? You don't know what you're asking. Are you able? He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? He's essentially asking them, have you counted the cost of following me? Can you follow me? Have you counted the cost? Luke 14, he talks about count the cost. All disciples must count the cost. Be prepared to take up their cross. Are you able to follow me? And he, and he talks about this cup and this baptism. Maybe they didn't understand. Maybe we don't understand what that means, this cup. When we look at the Old Testament, that cup, sometimes it's referred to as a blessing. But mostly it's referred to as God's wrath. It's a suffering particularly for sin. If you look in Isaiah 51, he talks about this cup. Isaiah 51, in verse 17, he says, Wake yourselves, is, wake yourselves, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl. The cup of staggering. As Israel is going to suffer for the sins that they've committed, God says, you are going to drink from the cup of my wrath. But don't worry, a little bit later in verse 22, he says, thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleased the cause of his people, 
Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more, and I'll put it into the hand of your tormentors. He's going to take that suffering from them, and he's going to give it to Babylon. They will suffer. It's this picture of suffering for sin. And we get another glimpse of that in Isaiah 40, or Jeremiah 49. And here he's talking about judgment on Edom. And if you remember that Edom are the descendants of Esau. If you also remember that God said, Jacob I love and Esau I hated. And he says in Jeremiah 49, picking up verse 10, But I've stripped Esau bare. I've uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. Listen to this. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. Now listen to the text. For thus says the Lord, If those who do not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. You must drink. They're suffering. The cup is suffering for sin. And then even in Mark 14 later, verse 36, you know this, as Jesus is praying in the garden, He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. But not I will. Not what I will, what you will. This cup is suffering for sin. He's asking them, can you do this? Are you able? He talks about a baptism. Other than uh, the baptism that we know of in the New Testament, there's no reference to that word in the Old Testament. But we do see, see many allusions in the New Testament to Old Testament suffering as being in an immersion, as being immersed in calamity and trouble and engulfing. Job 22, 10 and 11 says, Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see. A flood of water covers you. In Psalm 18, 16, a psalm of David he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. Psalm 42, 7, another psalm of David. He calls, deep, he calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. Psalm 69, 1 and 2, another psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Further in verse 15, let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. So there's continued reference to being engulfed in water, and the suffering that comes with that, the trouble, the calamity. And even Paul reminds us in Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Essentially saying, would you be able to suffer and die as my followers? He's asking them that question. And then he gives this foreboding pronouncement 
because they reply in a way that tells us that they still did not understand. They still didn't get it. He asked them the question, are you able? And they quickly reply, we're able. Yep, we can do it. And they would. They would suffer. They would take on the cup. They would take on this baptism. We know that James, according to Acts 12, James was martyred. He was the first of the apostles martyred by Herod the Agrippa. Agrippa. Herod Agrippa, by the sword, most likely he had his head cut off. And we know that John, though we don't read of him being martyred, we know that uh, he was exiled to Patmos and suffered there for being a disciple of Christ. Their cup and their baptism would not look the same as Christ's, though. Their cup and their baptism wouldn't carry the same significance either. You know, when we look at uh, Jeremiah 49, it says that the innocent suffered as a result of the sins of another. But Christ, Christ was the innocent who would suffer to atone for the sins of another. As a matter of fact, his suffering would atone for the sins of all other. That's the beauty of the gospel. See, we know that, that God created us to be in a relationship with him. You understand that? That we were created to be in an intimate, loving relationship with God. But in the garden, sin entered in the picture. What was created as good was stained by sin. And a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. And so that's why man was cast out of the garden, forever separated. Simple man could not be in the presence of the holy God. That commune was ripped apart. But God, knowing that He created us to be in a relationship with Him, and before all eternity had developed that plan, he, he had had a plan that He would send His Son to die and atone for the, son, the sins of man. And thereby bringing together God and man in a relationship that can never be separated. And if we respond to that, we respond to the gospel. It's up to us to respond to that truth in belief and in faith. And we too will never be separated. That's the beauty of the, of the gospel. We are the sinful ones. And Christ suffered for our sin. And it, I, had to, I had to bring up those words, the song that we sang today. All I have is Christ, the the. The verse in it says, I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now, all I know is grace. What a beautiful line. So he suffered for us. And even knowing that, knowing that there was a difference, knowing that they would take the cup and they would be baptized, they would suffer and die, knowing that that would look differently and the effect of it, the impact of it would even be differently, Knowing that, look at Jesus' still humble response to that. They said we were able. He said, the cup that I drink, you, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He did not belittle their suffering. Yeah, yeah, you're going to die. John, you're going to be an old man. And James, it's going to go quick for you. It's going to be a sword. I'm going to die on a cross. 
No, he didn't belittle their suffering. And he didn't, he didn't belittle the impact, trivialize the impact of, their, of their, the cup and their, their baptism. Knowing the vast difference of the impact of both, he humbly said, yes, you will drink of the cup and baptize with this baptism. And even in denying their request, he was still humble. He deferred to the Father. But to sit at my right hand and at my left, it is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Some of your texts might even say, by the Father. He deferred to the Father. So he humbly said no. Look at the response of the other ten. They were indignant. It says they were indignant at James and John. No, this is not some sort of righteous indignation. They were standing there going, how could they come to Jesus? Didn't you understand what he just said? The verse right before this said that he's got to suffer and die. Didn't they understand that? No, this is not some kind of righteous indignation. This was a selfish indignation. Because, as one commenter said, they were the same spirit that James and John. They felt the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, when Luke records this event, he leaves the names out of it, and he says there was a dispute that had arisen among the disciples. But they all had gone through this. And, in fact, we had references just a little bit ago in chapter 9. Uh, it says that as they were walking, picking up verse 34, as they were walking, he was talking, and they kept silent because he had asked them, what are they talking about? And they were silent because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They all felt that way. It's just these two are the ones that were arrogant enough to come and ask the question. And Jesus turned and focused on the 12. Notice what he does here. He, he, he called them to him. He unified them together. Come to me. Come to me. And so not only physically, but then he attempted to hear spiritually to unite them together. Come to me. He called them to him, and he began to teach them, giving them an example of the Gentile lordship, something that they could relate to, something they, they could see all the time. Don't be like the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles lord it over their subjects. And, and this is something we saw you know, back in Daniel. Daniel had twice praised God. Praise the God of Daniel. Praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Praise this God. And yet, in Daniel 4.30, he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for my glory of my majesty? He said these things, pointing to himself as if a God. And immediately, while the words were still in his mouth, God struck him. Gentile rulers think of themselves as gods and they put their trust in what's in front of them that's why that's why he did not want god did not want david to do a census david wanted to do a census count all his warriors how am i doing i said no i want you to trust in me don't don't trust in numbers that's what the gentile rulers do trust in me they lord it over them that's why emperors they they would they would insist on emperor worship as gods. That's why their names were on the coin, or their faces were on the coins. And we're going to see that later uh, in, a, in a further text in a, in a couple of weeks uh, where, where we see that there's this reminder that Caesar's face is on the coin. He's saying, you can't be like that. 
So James and John came with a selfish request. They didn't understand what they were asking. And Jesus reminds them, you can't be like the Gentile rulers. This is this selfish ambition that brought them to Jesus. And he reminds them and begins to teach them about having selfless service. And he, and he begins with talking about being a servant. And notice that this begins with a command. Verse 43, but it shall not be among you. It shall not be. This is a command. This isn't a, you know, it really shouldn't look like that. Yeah, it really shouldn't. I wouldn't do it that way. He's saying, it shall not be. You want preeminence? You must be a slave. You want to be great? You must be a servant. Those are the words that are used here. It shall not be. You must be a servant. You must be a slave. Must be a servant. That Greek word he uses there, diakonos. You might have heard this before, that word diakonos. It's the word that we get the, the term deacon from. Diakonos. It means to be a servant. And literally, in that time, it meant be somebody that waits on tables. A waiter. That's what it means to be a servant. You wait on others. You serve others. And this is an echo from 935. After that event where who can be greatest and all these type of things, he says in chapter 935, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Same term, same phrase. He's reminding them again, I just told you this. You must be a servant. You want preeminence? You must be a slave. And that term, doulos, that, that means a bondservant, a type of slave. And think about it. This is not a slave like as nations are conquered, slaves are captured. This is somebody, a bondservant is somebody who voluntarily gives themselves to service to somebody. They voluntarily subject themselves underneath somebody. You must be a servant, completely subjected to another. And maybe you're somebody that's here this morning and saying, you know what? I don't really want either one of those. I don't want to be great. I don't want to be first. I don't want to be preeminent. I don't care if anybody in here knows my name. I just want to kind of do my part, kind of worship. I got this little thing that I do in the church. I just want to do that. I don't really don't want preeminence. I'll tell you what, on Wednesday night, we looked at a text in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I will reiterate what was said before. If you are not involved in one of our small groups, you're really missing out. It doesn't matter if it's the Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Friday night. Please get involved in one of these groups because that's where we come together as a family. Um, and so on Wednesday night, uh, our uh, small groups that meet in homes throughout the community, we were talking about 1 Peter chapter 4. And he says in verse 10, as each one has received a gift. Do you understand that everybody in the church has been gifted by God? Each one of us. If you're a believer, God has gifted you. So the humble, yeah, I don't want preeminence. This is you. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves. How? By the strength that God supplies. And why? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Our gifts are to serve one another. To edify, to build up the church. To unify the church. So we all have 
We all have a reason to take heed of Christ's words here. But then finally, he uses himself as an example. In this passage, this final verse, 45, think of the that phrase, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. When you think about your greatness, or when you think about your humility, when we think of how great we are, how little we are, remember, even the Son of Man came, even God came and served. I'm not so little or so great that I cannot rise up to what Christ has already done. I might not match His perfection, but even He came. We should be humbled by that. And he even uses the, in Luke 22, that passage, uh, he references back to being a servant. He says, for who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as one who serves, says in Luke 22, 27. This is not some holy version of Undercover Boss. You understand that? You ever seen that show, Undercover Boss, the CEO goes in in disguise as somebody and goes in at a low-level position, whether that's flipping burgers at the burger joint, making beds at the hotel. He comes in at that low position so he can get to know maybe some of the problems that are going on in the business, get to know some of the people. In order the course of the week of being there, he finds out some of the problems. He gets to know people's stories. And maybe by the end, he's going to fix all those problems. There's changes that are coming. He's going to fix them. And somebody's always going to get a scholarship. Somebody's house is going to be paid off. In some way, he comes in, that CEO fixes things. And while all along you can see where this is going, you're kind of heartless if at the end you're not getting a little misty-eyed because, like, right? This is not a holy version of Jesus in Undercover Boss. This isn't Jesus going incognito so he can learn what it's like to be human. Consider Christ here for a moment. This is Christ. This is the creator of all things. This is Christ in eternal fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Christ who's going to share in their glory and splendor. This is Christ who yet, Christ who came and condescended to be born in a stable from a poor teenager. This is Christ who touched the unclean. This is Christ who wounded, or healed many and fed tens of thousands. This is Christ who washed their filthy feet, even the feet of Judas, who he knew was going to betray him. This is Christ who submitted himself to the mockery of a public trial and the humiliation of torture and execution. This is Christ who gave his life as a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is, don't you? It's the price paid to free a captive. His life is the price that was paid to free us from the captivity of sin. This is Christ, the one true Lord, humbly served them and us. Well, they would get it. They would eventually understand, wouldn't they? They would eventually live out Christ's example. James, it's said that by the church historian Eusebius that James, on his way to his execution, the man escorting him 
felt such grief over what was occurring. And as he wept, he asked James for forgiveness. And after considering this, James said, Peace be with you. At which his escort cried out and proclaimed Christ and then joined James in that execution. James got it. This is John. Think about this for a moment. In John's Gospel, he has the pen in front of him. He could write this story about what happened with Jesus, what happened with these disciples, these men. Note that when you read the Gospel of John, not once does he mention his own name. If you see the word John, it's a reference to John the Baptist. Never once does he use his own name. For that matter, never once does he use the name of his brother. Sons of Zebedee is all he uses. Or he refers to himself as the disciple. Peter and the other disciples went in. Or the disciples, the Savior loved. And in Revelation 1.1, as he introduces that book, that revelation of Jesus Christ, look how he refers to himself. I saw him just try to get there. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. John got it. John learned the lesson. Even the Apostle Paul. Paul had a problem that he had to address, the arrogance that he had to address in the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, he wrote in chapter 1, he addressed this. He brought the topic up. Apparently, there were people that were saying, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter. And even for the super holy, I follow Christ. They were boasting in who they follow. And he says, chapter 2, verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave strength. So neither he that plants or he that waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he would go on to say in chapter 4, verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. They got it. I wonder how many of us get it. Do we get it? Do we set aside our selfish ambition and pride to pursue selfless service? Charles Spurgeon once said, and I think this is where uh, possibly President Kennedy got the quote from, Spurgeon said this, the genuine spirit of a Christian is not to ask that something should be done for him, but to ask his master, what can he do for him? Is your prayer, Lord, where do you want me? What do you want me to do? Jesus told the twelve, they must be a servant. They must be a slave. Are we asking, Lord, how can I serve you? Master, what might I do for you today? Jesus not only lived a life as an example for us, but he also sent his spirit who can equip us, who will equip us for not just life, but sanctification. 
not only must, must we commit to selfless service, but we are able to selflessly serve through the power of the Spirit of God. My friends, my brothers and sisters, you are able, we are able, and now we must. We must selflessly serve. We must selflessly be slaves to Christ. If you have any questions about what that means, if you have any questions about the gospel, maybe you're at the point where you're like, serve, be a slave. I don't even know what this gospel is about. I'd love to talk to you about that. I would love to take time after service. I'm going to be over in this. We have a prayer room off to the, my left or right. I'm gonna be, I would love to talk to you about that. I would love to answer questions about what you have uh, that you might have about any of this, about the gospel. Even pray with you. Maybe you're a member of the church and you, and you have a need for prayer. You want somebody just to listen to you and pray with you. I'd love to do that. But maybe, maybe you have a question about the gospel. I'd love to share that with you. I'd love to help you know what it means to serve Him and be a slave to Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, You and You alone are the greatest. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the Maker and the Master of all things. To You belong all glory and honor. And while no longer slaves to sin, we are Your bondservants. Servants to all. We often think more highly of ourselves than we ought to and place too much esteem on ourselves than we ought to. That's a confession of faith. We pray that you would mercifully, mercifully would you, Lord, give us the humility to serve to serve your church and our neighbors as a reflection of how Christ humbly served us. Help us not to seek our own glory, but to instead glorify you in all that we say and do, even the motivation of our hearts. Lord, even now we ask, how can we serve you? Help us to continually seek your will in all humility and grace. We pray these things in Christ's name.